This Week in HPC. Baidu sets new benchmark for image recognition. And notes from the Analytics and Big Data Conference. It's This Week in HPC. Hi, everybody, and thanks for listening in to another episode of This Week in HPC with Intersect 360 Research. I'm Addison Snell, and that's Michael Feldman. And This Week in HPC is distributed in partnership with our friends at top500.org. How are you doing this week, Michael? Very well, Addison. How are you doing? Doing fine, thanks. I had a fun beginning, or, or I should say middle of my week, uh, giving a keynote presentation at the Analytics and Big Data Summit, which was put on by the Storage and Networking Industry Association, SNEA. But before we get to that, there's some news going around about a new benchmark for image recognition that's been set by Badu. Yeah, Badu put out an interesting paper uh, quite recently about a study they did uh, uh, having to do with deep learning, in this case, image recognition, they've they've put together a, a GPU accelerated supercomputer of a fair size, and they've been working on their image recognition software quite a bit. And they basically broke one of the one of the uh, common benchmarks for image recognition uh, in the industry. They beat out Google by uh, a percentage point or half a percentage point. And they came very close to uh, what a human being would would yield on this particular image uh, database. Image recognition is traditionally a very difficult application for computers, for artificial intelligence. It's an area that uh, humans do well in relative to computers, but a lot of companies such as Google and obviously Badu have been chasing it in terms of uh, having new levels of, of performance. Parallelism is kind of a, a tricky area here because you have the, a blind man and the elephant problem where every node or every computing element might be looking at a different part of the part of the picture and you can make that more refined but then every every processing element is looking at a smaller and smaller portion at some point you still have to parallelize it and put it all back together into uh, some kind of overarching intelligence that says what it's a picture of right and I think the focus of what they did here I mean they they put together this uh, fair size supercomputer and paralyzed a lot of it because they put a lot of GPUs into this. Um, but the focus was on optimizing the parallel strategy. So they wanted to minimize the data transfers between the node and overlapping, you know, computation and communication because you got GPUs involved, especially. And uh, that's how they they approached sort of the peak performance of the supercomputer. It was point, uh, it was basically 600 uh, peak teraflops, and they were able to squeeze a lot of those teraflops into this application because of the way they did the software. They're calling the custom-built supercomputer Minhua, which is a Chinese portmanteau word that combines the names of a few different goddesses uh, into one word. And you were pointing out its GPU-accelerated 36 server nodes, right. their dual-core, or should say dual-socket, six-core Intel Xeon processor nodes, and then for every pair of Intel Xeon processors, there's four NVIDIA Tesla K40M GPUs all connected with FDR and Finiban to get up to 600 teraflops of single precision peak performance. Right. And what they were able to achieve specifically was on this ImageNet database, which is a database that uh, researchers are using to sort of measure uh, 
image recognition accuracy, they, they claimed a 5.98% error rate, um, and that would that beat out the previous uh, top uh, number there from Google, and they had 6.6%, but the more a uh, salient feature here is that it, humans achieved uh, an estimated rate of just 5.1%, so just a little bit better than what this 36-node supercomputer could do. So that's that's quite impressive. Right. That's the point here is that humans are not perfect at this. And although right. it's easy to say that, you know, given a stack of, of pictures, if you told the human being to go pick out which ones are Brad Pitt wearing a hat, right. you know, you, you, you just go through and do it, the computer would have trouble unless there are already metadata that said Brad Pitt hat, right. and we're trying to get to where the computer can search for images for you without those uh, metadata tags. Right. And uh, as we pointed out, the you know the configuration is one thing. What they've done on the algorithm side is quite another. I think there's there's really most of the work here has got to be in software. Yeah, most of it is in software, and it, it certainly was, uh, I think, the primary achievement here, but also they they optimized around uh, the GPUs. They knew, obviously, quite a bit about how to program this, and they were able to, like I said before, squeeze performance out of it. And it, it's interesting, Badoo is doing this, while Google's doing this, too, all the search engine uh all the companies have, that have search engines are doing this basically because of, of the revolution in handheld devices. I mean, in a sense, a lot of people won't necessarily be typing, you know, certain text into search engines anymore. They'll be going around with whatever devices, take a picture of where they are, what they're doing, and say, what is this? And and so it becomes more and more useful to be able to put these kind of searches together. The other thing Badoo has worked on is also uh, speech recognition. Again, you know, without... Uh, having to do you know specific text searches you can talk into it sometimes from a foreign language and and get the information out in, in a very unique way in a very you know user friendly way so uh, more and more of these search engine companies are turning to these uh, deep learning technologies and be able to get very accurate uh, searches from these alternate uh, alternate uh, ways of doing it yeah, it's a big data world we're in. You know, you just picture yourself out on a fishing expedition and pulling in a fish and shooting a picture of it with your smartphone and having your smartphone tell you what kind of fish it is, whether or not you've caught a keeper, and if it is a keeper, if it's good to eat and how to cook it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But it's got to know where you are, too, to know uh, and, and whether or not you got an active uh, fishing license, too. <laughs> it's, yeah. uh, it's amazing how close we are to all of these things. Now, with regards to the image record, Recognition. The paper gives some technical details, not really very in-depth, of course, but they refer to two data parallelism techniques that they've pioneered uh, advancements in in order to get this kind of parallelism. The first they're calling butterfly synchronization, which has to do with essentially the, the mesh refinement, it seems, of, of assigning different gradients of the image to each GPU. And the other uh, innovation they're talking about are lazy updates where as the gradients are passed back and forth between the different GPUs that the update doesn't occur until the information is needed which basically reduces the overhead in the communications and allows for greater data parallelism 
Yeah, exactly. That's that's sort of the secret sauce here. But even so, they're they're calling some of this a, a brute force approach. I mean, it's it's you know breaking it down. It's not like what maybe what you could think. What happens inside your head when you're doing image recognition? You have to do this sort of divide and conquer thing, and and use a lot of computational power to do this. Whereas you know there's there's very little power when when we do it. It, it seems like you know we're, what do we run on 10 watts and and do these things in the highly parallel fashion, but all on our analog uh, computer brains. So um, obviously this this work is being advanced rapidly, and it's it's going to be something I think all the all the big search engines are going to have in, in the very near future is going to be used in production, and, and I think we'll just start taking it for granted. Well, yeah, we'll look forward to those capabilities uh, as, as we keep adding uh, more of our images onto the, the slag heap of big data that does nothing but continue to grow, which brings us back around to our second story today and the, the time I got to spend at the Analytics and Big Data Summit. Right. That's uh, part of the SNEA conference series is out, out there in, uh, in Silicon Valley that you were at. Right. It was in San Jose uh, on Wednesday, the Analytics and Big Data Summit. I got to give a presentation myself on some of the uh, trends that we're seeing in big data. Uh, we got to talk about some things that uh, we're seeing in our not only in our research, but uh, just in terms of how markets develop with moving toward now more commercialized uh, platforms for different types of big data problems. The early days of big data, as we pointed out before, have been marked by uh, mostly in-house and and, uh, and bolstered by open source types of solutions. It's been the wild west out there. Now that we're a few years into big data, we're starting to see some maturation in that with different types of commercialized modules that are specifically tailored to different types of analytics applications or time processing applications, obviously database structured and unstructured data exactly what type of solution you need. It'll depend on what your big data problem is, but sure. uh, we expect to see you know, marching forward more commercialization, more standardization over the next few years in these kinds of solutions. Yeah, it's definitely a fast-moving field. We've seen, of course, you know, we've talked about it ad nauseum on this uh, on this podcast, but there's a lot more applications now. There's a lot more technology, and certainly a lot of money being thrown at this. Um, did did you happen to catch any of the other sessions or talks that kind of caught your eye there? Yeah, I was there all day right after my talk. The other keynote was Brian Marshall, who's the vice president of corporate development with Hortonworks. And although his presentation was entitled Turning Data into Capital with Hadoop, uh, really his presentation went far beyond Hadoop to talk about a lot more of these modular kinds of frameworks and how they plug into the overall Hortonworks uh, portfolio. It really dovetailed nicely one presentation into the next to show how these solutions are starting to evolve. There were wonderful uh, presentations on omics data, protecting data, uh, some of the new technologies that are emerging. And then my favorite, I think, came at the very end of the day, which was Eric Hibbard, the chief technology officer of security and privacy from Hitachi Data Systems, was talking about the current reforms in the European Union with regards to data protection. Yeah, I mean, that's a, that's a very topical topic. 
topic. I mean, it's it's something we've we've seen a lot of the news, especially with the uh, some of the NSA revelations and some of the other other ways that the government here in the U.S. is is starting to use is starting to filter out data from from commercial organizations like Google and Microsoft and Yahoo and the rest. So there's a lot of controversy surrounding that sort of privacy. Right. Uh, in my own talk, I highlighted two challenge areas for big data moving forward. One of them was, of course, the skills gap you can create at all of the organizations in the world, the need for data scientists to come in and manage your big data processes. But you got to remember that data scientist was not a title that existed before about two years ago. And where are all these people coming from, right? You can rewrite your, data, your resume to make yourself into a data scientist. But you got to realize that you're trying to add a lot of skills into the workforce really fast, and that gap is going to be one major hurdle. The other one I talked about was privacy. Now, I only alluded to it talking about things like uh, GCHQ, the NSA equivalent in, in the UK, uh, the story almost a year ago leaked by Edward Snowden to The Guardian, where they were capturing Yahoo chat webcam images and, and using them to try facial recognition. and. Uh, uh, you know the privacy implications of that, but uh, Eric Hibbert, as I was mentioning from from HDS, really took that uh, topic in a deep dive for 45 minutes, talking about some of the the changes in EU privacy law, and I should say upgrades to EU privacy law. Although that might be a bit of a, a value statement, where uh, that's they're really ex far exceeding the U.S. in terms of individual protection of privacy. Yeah, just being here in Europe for for a few months, you can see. That, I mean, just just the news and, the, and just the general culture here. You can see there's much more concern about online privacy than you typically hear about in the states. I, I think uh, you know it, there's there's some cultural um, backstory going here too. But uh, just the legal framework is starting to attack this much more vigorously than I think in in North America. Um, so it's it's sort of eye opening and. I think they're sort of ahead of the game. I mean, I think this is, this yeah. is going to happen everywhere. Um, it just doesn't get sort of front and center yet. But uh, the Europeans are certainly concerned about this right now. Well, sure. The most uh, widespread recent example was the uh, right to be forgotten case, where one individual in the EU wanted his uh, digital history scrubbed and uh, and eventually won that case. Now, it's a very difficult thing to go implement, and the EU is putting in some fairly stringent regulations for companies to follow to the extent that they have to be able to protect and eventually eliminate digital uh, footprint information of people's personal identifying information. The EU has really uh, put its foot down that even when you click through to your free service and click OK on the license agreement, that that does not constitute express consent that you don't own your own personal information. Uh, the guidelines, the regulations are fairly clear now in the EU that the individual retains the right to their own personal information. Yeah, I mean, I think this is actually an important development that 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 needs to be addressed. I mean, it's you know when you hear about the these news stories coming out about how people's privacy is 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 being invaded in cases where you know it, it doesn't necessarily involve a crime, um, big data starts to get a little tarnished. Just just the the uh, sort of the meme of big data and it sort of hasn't it begins to gather a sort of negative connotation in people's minds. So it seems like you know if if you want people to 
use the these data analytics and and have a positive view of it, you're going to sort of need to grapple with these privacy and protection issues in in some sort of sane way that society in general is comfortable with. Right. I'm I'm not an attorney here, although I I will say this topic has interested me personally, and I've I've read about it and also asked friends of mine who are uh, this kind of attorney to to try to give me their interpretation, at least in U.S. law, of you know does the government have the right to monitor my Gmail uh, that I've sent to you to uh, you know to open it up and look at it and see if I'm doing anything fishy without a warrant? To me, personally, emotionally, I feel like the government can't do that without a warrant. That it would constitute illegal search and seizure. But the actual legalities of that are, are not clear because I voluntarily have given up that information, uh, perhaps implicitly, to uh, well Google in the case of Gmail or it could be Yahoo or Apple or or, or anybody. Uh, so there's a question of my right to privacy under under U.S. law in that regard. Right, and under the Constitution, which I think will eventually end up in the courts here, as soon as a, a case comes to court where somebody has gathered that information and charged somebody with a crime, but done so with with this method of, of gathering information sort of without the knowledge, and then uh, it'll, it'll probably work its way up through the courts, maybe all the way to the Supreme Court, and people will decide if that is something the government is, is legally uh, capable of doing. In the meantime, if, if you don't like it in the U.S., you want better privacy, move to Germany. There you go. <laughs> Which is where you're spending a good part of your time these days, uh, and I'm glad you're doing it. Uh, we've got a, a worldwide yeah. presence here at Intersect 360 Research. You're helping us out with that, Michael. Yeah, not because I'm, I'm <laughs> hiding from the government. Nothing to hide here. Just happen to be here. <laughs> the NSA is listening to our podcast right now, and yes. we thank them for listening, and thanks to you for listening also. Uh, everybody has been listening in to This Week in HPC. You've been listening to This Week in HPC. 